What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. We got a new setup. We've got new artwork behind me. We've got new questions. This was supposed to be a fundamentals focus session, and it was one of our uh, really great Q&A sessions again. So I'm really glad to be back doing this and sharing uh, what I can with everyone. So some great questions about modes. We dig deep into like mode scale chords, relationships, and kind of how I think about that, talking about compositions, talking about practicing, talking about low range, high range, and I uh, did uh, much more playing in this episode than we have in the past. So uh, I'm really excited for the new iteration of the show. Leave your questions down below or check out the questions in the description so you can jump to the ones that you want to hear the answers to. And uh, as always, make sure you like and subscribe. And so uh, we love love it if you could subscribe to the channel. We're going to be doing lives also on YouTube this year. So if you want to watch live on YouTube, so Friday, 1 p.m., we'll be there. So thanks for watching, and we'll catch you in the next one. Okay. Hope everyone's doing well. Today is uh, Friday, January 15th, and we're back with our weekly live stream. And today we are going to talk about uh, some trombone fundamental stuff. I have a new setup here, as you can see. Um, uh, hopefully... Everything goes according to plan, still learning about the new thing. We even have a second camera angle, but that's still kind of being sorted out. Uh, but we'll kind of go back to that. If you're on Instagram, we're not going to get the pleasure of having our multiple camera angles, but that's going to be be okay. Um, I can't wait to hear you know some questions from everybody, but uh, we're going to go ahead and... Uh, get, get started and talk about some trombone fundamentals. But first, we're going to talk about a few questions that came in this week can you play, should you play and practice trombone left-handed, meaning backwards, like the other way? And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, no, you should not do that. And uh, <laughs> I think what he means is uh, actually turning the trombone around, you know, like uh, playing it backwards, like flipping it around. I'm not going to do it because it doesn't make any sense. Um, Slide Hampton plays that way. So if you want to play that way, I would play that way, but I would not recommend going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So, uh, yeah, don't do that. Excellence. What's up, Augustine? How are you? He says, do I like Carl Fontana? Carl Fontana, of course, is an amazing uh, trombonist. I would say he's outside of my top five only because um, I, there's other people that I like more that play with a more of a like a more aggressive style maybe, or more of a big sound, I guess. I mean, not to take anything away from Carl, just everyone has their preferences, you know? He's great, and I think you should study him, and obviously, like, that great Fontana record was really pivotal. It's part of a balanced diet of uh, checking out all different trombonists of all different types, so I think that that's important to do as well. I guess we're going to move into just talking about fundamentals today, so I uh, hope everyone... Uh, enjoys fundamentals at the beginning of the year. Uh, if you didn't uh, set your goals yet for the year, I highly recommend doing so. Uh, I do have a goal setting course. It's not necessary that you need to do that in particular, but I do recommend it uh, in general. So if you want to check that out, goal setting course, you can find it in the Instagram bio. It's the fastest place to find all this stuff. But uh, today we're going to talk about um, fundamentals, trombone fundamentals. So if you want to, if you're not a trombonist, you might get scared away by our tr trombone fundamental talk. The way that I like to talk about it and the way that I've talked about it, I recently I did a master class for uh, Purdue. Uh, they're having a jazz festival. And I was thinking about a lot of things about what to talk about and how to, you know, most effectively share something virtually that could apply to all, you know, all students of all different levels. And uh, it brought me back to an article that I wrote for Downbeat Magazine that came out a while ago now. It was called... 
Clarity, the Art of Artistry. Uh, that was the name of the article. And in that article, we talk about uh, some things, uh, including clarity in terms of all types of trombone playing and musicianship, and then flexibility as being a secondary thing. And flexibility, not just like lip slurs, but flexibility in terms of like breadth of knowledge, breadth of concept, uh, flexibility of being able to play anything that you need to play exactly when you need to play it. So that's what I think of when I think of the word flexibility. So um, eventually here we'll get into some flexibilities, for example. But uh, I think that this is just like a super important idea to start with and kind of let you know like where I'm coming from in terms of um, flexibility, clarity, and uh, just trying to be uh, as clear with what's in our mind and making it come off the horn as possible. So that's where, where my mind is at with that. I'm always trying to get my what's coming out my horn to match what's in my brain. So matching the concept with the idea. So Augustine, is another question. If you had to make a row of trombones right now, who would you call? It's a good question. <laughs> um, I don't know. What would I? Who would I call right now? Like Dream Team, alive and alive and dead, or only alive? Augustine. And it would depend what the music was because everyone is so specialized in like certain different ways, you know? I would pick my teachers probably. Like I would pick Wycliffe Gordon and Steve Turay, Steve Davis and Michael Deese. Oh, that's four. And the bass trombonist. There's a lot of great bass trombonists. Jen Wharton maybe or like an improvising bass trombonist would be someone like, you know, if you don't know Max Seigel, he's really great based in New York or Chris Glassman is a great young player. Doug Proviance is legendary, of course. Um, you know, that's too many already. So it's too hard to pick four. And I think anybody would uh, want to, anybody would uh, probably do the same as me, kind of dodge the question only because there's so many great people, you know? So uh, there's a question from from DJ. How do you work to undo a bad habit that has been in your ingrained for years? Example, tensing up in high register. Oh man, that is a classic. This is a great question. So this is what I like to do. And especially with students and myself is not so much worry about the bad habit and worry more about the good habit that we're trying to achieve. So what do I mean? I mean that if we focus too much on the bad habit, like don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You're going to just, you're just thinking about that bad, the quote unquote bad thing instead of focusing on the habit that we want. So I would focus rather than don't tense up, I would focus on relax. I, that's why I like to play things like ballad stuff in the upper register because it helps you stay relaxed. It doesn't have a forceful musical need. So you can kind of play, play relaxed in that upper register. Kind of like, um, you know, you could do something, play something like, uh, you know, I always liked playing um, how insensitive, like You know, something like that, where you play nice and relaxed and easy in the upper register. Uh, DJ, that's what I like to do. Focus on the the goal rather than focusing on the bad habit. Um, knowing the thing you're trying to get rid of, right? But you also, if you focus on it too much, in my opinion and experience, you end up with just um, a focus on that bad thing rather than the new thing that you want to curate. So the, the, the good habit that you want to curate. So I would recommend uh, something like that whether it's in the high research, some kind of tonguing thing, just a habit in daily life. Like it's really hard to cut stuff out. So instead of cutting stuff out, if you just think about 
the ha- habit or the thing that you want to add in. Here we go with Brian Soy. He says, how deep will you go into transcribing one person before moving to the next five to those 10 in general? How do you go about choosing what to transcribe? So um, if you're talking about for me or for my students, but um, I guess it's kind of the same, but in terms of choosing transcriptions and how deep to go, um, it really depends on what the educational outcome is or what the outcome we're looking for is. Uh, Sometimes you don't need to transcribe a whole solo but you need to transcribe a bunch of parts of solos for example if you're trying to get vocabulary you want to find vocabulary so i might say all right scour these uh scour these solos these jj solos for some some licks you know for lack of a better way to put it you know scour these solos for two five licks and then you might need 10 solos to find five in each but in general, uh, you know, we, we've been doing projects where we have we'll do a whole record maybe. So that's like six to eight tracks uh, before moving on. I think it's better to go deeper than wider and have a really good understanding of a player. I think it also can be really easy to get bogged down, you know, so trying to make sure that you don't get bogged down. And the best way to not get bogged down is to keep moving. Right. So the new plan, our updated plan, is that to do a half semester, so think like seven, eight weeks, two months uh, on one thing and then move to the next. So maybe it's JJ and then the next thing is like something else, like totally different, like composing or uh, creating their own uh, project that they're going to lead at the end of this or theoretically, you know. Brian, I would say five to ten is a good range. Um, I think it makes sense to study someone until you can do a good impression of them. If that means you can do it after one solo, then maybe that's enough. But you probably need to have, you know, more than one uh, to really make a difference. Uh, okay, from Augustine, says, which is the piece of music that is taking you the most work to play? Uh, so I guess he means like, what's the hardest piece of music that I've played that I that it took me the most work? Um, it's always a classical piece, right? There was a time when I was, I was, every year I would audition for the Radio City music hall uh, christmas spectacular sorry that's what it's called uh and it would be like a classical thing and i always try to work up bluebells of scotland but it was like this reduced version that i made that was like a conglomeration of all these different uh thing all these different like cutting down all the easy parts out and only playing the hard parts and so i would never recommend that you do that <laughs> it's really difficult and uh, no rest that was hard, but it actually in like a practical set sense, like a tune or something uh, in a jazz thing. I mean, I think transcriptions can be really difficult. That Mysterioso solo by JJ is really hard or like the Nat Adderley solo that comes right before it on uh, Trombone Master. That Mysterioso uh, is pretty epic. So I would I would definitely recommend that one. And that one was a hard one, a really hard one. So let's see if we can talk a little bit today about fundamentals. And so for me, it always comes back down to sound. You know, somebody asked about Carl Fontana and if he's my favorite person, you know, and it's because he's probably not my favorite sound is probably why I would say that he's not my favorite. And that doesn't mean he's not great because he is. But um, there's other sounds that I like more, just like some people are going to say that they like my sound and some people are going to say they don't think is that good. And that's just kind of how how life goes. And uh, not not everything is for everyone, you know what I mean. But um, the first thing I want to th- say about those fu- about fundamentals is like you got to do them every day, and every, maybe not every day, but at least every time we pick up the horn and think about, all right, so what is my purpose? My purpose right now is to make a beautiful sound, and oftentimes we 
skip over the idea of creating a sound concept and knowing what our concept is, knowing what we're aiming for before we start, right? So sometimes I have students go through like a sound concept exercise where they're uh, thinking about, talking about, coming up with the perfect sound in their minds, their mind's ear, right? So this imagined perfect sound of a conglomeration of all their favorite players, all the different aspects of their favorite players, kind of putting them into one one thing. So what I want to share today, the first exercise, a long tone exercise out of my uh, Get Ready book, which is a which is a warm-up book if you're interested in finding a warm-up book. It's really not necessary. You can find all the play-alongs for free on on um, Spotify and on YouTube, and you can play along the whole routine with me on YouTube as well. So this is by no means, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm just trying to show you that what happens with long tones is people always move just too darn fast, and they don't play them long enough. Long tones need to be really long. Okay, so what I want to do today is play that first exercise, which is two minutes and 16 seconds of a long tone. So we're going to play a long tone. You know, we're going to play a very long tone. This is the first exercise. And so if you're playing along with me, if you got your trombone or you're to play another instrument, we're going to play a concert F, right? And we're just going to focus on making the most beautiful sound we can for two whole minutes. And I'm going to do it for you right now because two whole minutes is a long time. And you're probably just kind of playing... Kind of fast through your long tones, but that's the biggest difference. The the people that slow down and really dig deep into their sound and really think about the clarity of the sound, the flexibility of their sound, can it have different colors? All of this stuff are the people that end up going far in this industry. That sound thing. So we're gonna play this. We're just with a very long tone. And I just want you to get that. I get the idea of playing long tones as really long sounds in your brain because we often just skip through them too fast. All right. So uh, I'm going to play this quick and then uh, hopefully you'll play along with me and then we'll kind of I'll get to see more questions rolling in. We'll get to those.
So what that does is really gives you time. It gives you time to actually think through your sound. You're, you're actually hearing um, the, the quality of your sound. You're letting it fill up the room. Probably the more, the longer I played, you might've noticed like some of the started to go away a little bit. Like it's the first notes of the day. We're just trying to warm it up. We're trying to get things going. And often we just move too fast. Sometimes we have to, of course, like we got stuff to do. But um, if you have the time, I so much uh, think that it's important to, you know, slow down, play the long tones as really, really long tones. You know, that's like, that's a long tone to me. When I say play long tones, that's what I mean. You know, I'm thinking the whole time about the beautiful sound that I want to create or as close to it as I can. And then I go and I try to execute it, you know, in that, in that fashion. So that's probably the most fundamental thing that people mess up uh, when they're trying to really take their playing to the next level is not spending enough time on the most basic thing your sound because your sound is the most basic thing and then it's it's the most important thing because if you don't have a good sound what is anybody going to remember you by you know what i mean it's a comment from dana i miss bill watress oh sure his sweet tone in the high register was incredible sometimes i have trouble recognizing the notes recognizing the notes above a high b flat uh i think it's just a matter of playing those notes more you know, I, I'm not sure, Dana, if you mean like you recognize them in terms of orally recognize them or you mean in terms of recognizing them on the page or or which. But I think it all comes from experience and playing in that register uh, rather, than, rather than anything else. Uh, it's all experience. You know, you can hear those notes the more you play it. But they do get a little sometimes in that register, like especially with watchers, they get a little they sound kind of like a synthesizer, you know, like they're so warm, which is amazing. And I'm not, it's, I'm not trying to say something anything bad about that i'm just stating a fact that like they have this warmth and like and it does become kind of hard to hear because it sounds a little bit and you can't necessarily uh hear it (laughs) um but yeah i hear what you're saying but i think playing in that register you know getting used to you know playing up You know, once you start playing that register more, just like if you start playing the piano, you can start recognizing voicings, you know, just just more that one on one first person experience, you know, is really uh, pretty important to developing that that sense of um, recognition when you're when you're actually going to play on your own or something like that. All right. So from Anthony, I see another question coming in. He says, what's the most challenging composition you ever wrote? Oh, there's some that don't exist anymore, I would say. Those ones all got thrown in the trash. <laughs> there was a funny story that the guys in my band like used to like to bring up to me and like to talk about about a um, a time when. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking about this composition. I don't even remember what it was called, but it was a tune for my sextet, and the, it's and I think it was one of the very first gigs we ever did in New York. It was inspired by this Michael Brecker tune that had that was the baseline to my thing, but it had it was there was this tune on Pilgrimage that kind of has this bass a similar kind of baseline. Anyway, uh, so I did that, but it got so we got so lost in this tune, and just, <laughs> just yelled out "Do something!" and the band was like. Uh, they like to bring that up because we were just like lost and it was like, oh no, we're on a gig and it's a uh, terrible. So anyway, it happens to everybody. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the most challenging tune that I still play, the, the most challenging tune from the new record is The Sorcerer or A Sorcerer is a Myth, sorry. Uh, the tune The Sorcerer by uh, Herbie Hancock is pretty hard too. But um, 
I don't know. It's hard to say what's the most challenging. There's lots of challenging things and lots of things that are no longer challenging. Uh, I see a question from DJ. So before it goes away, any advice for setting professional expectations, boundaries when you're leading a band? Oh, that's a tricky one because you usually end up hiring your friends, right? The tricky thing with leading a band and having your friends in the band is, of course, those interpersonal relationships. I think it's just important to, for them to know when they're a sideman, it's their job to do what you say, you know, if you're paying them. If you're not paying them, then you kind of got to chill out, really, you know. But um, if you're paying them, that gives you kind of more leverage, you know. And I think it's a sign of respect that you're paying them for their time. If it's just to rehearse, if it's to record, I mean, of course, you know, reality is reality. But um, I don't know. You have to have a congenial relationship and a professional relationship and just um, be as clear as you can with what you want and make sure it's known. You know, you can't assume. Usually the problems arise because maybe the band leader isn't communicating super clearly with those people. And not having or not feeling like they can have an ongoing conversation. So you got to be cool and maybe not too dictatorial or else it's possible that the band could uh, revolt on you like they did on me that one time. Laura says, do something. What did they do? Yeah, they um, they we just like jumped to the next section or like jumped back to the head or something like that instead of falling apart. Like, But that was it was good. It was a very good like first gig in New York as a leader thing. It's OK because only a few people were there so it's 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 all good if you set the the thing is what the problems come in at least from my experience when you establish a an expectation but then you change it you know so if you can establish the expectation from the beginning you know if you can always be prepared on your end if you can always there not be any questions about what you what you want and what you expect and what they need to do you know, for the gig and everything can be clear from the beginning is the best. Cause once you change it or you start having to like nag at them about something, that's when it gets weird, you know? All right. Nathan asked, how do you begin arranging a standard for different ensembles? Do you start out with a particular sound in your head? Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, I think, um, I always like to think if I don't know what to do, I always go back to a masterclass that, uh, John Clayton gave at Juilliard and I'd, tell my students this frequently is that the more important thing than any particular note or any particular chord or any anything like that in an arrangement or an original for that matter is the musical events along the way so when you talk about an arrangement you're really just talking about arranging uh, in order putting in order a list of musical events so that's what he's recommended doing uh, especially when you don't know what you, you want to do necessarily yet. It's just like jotting it down on a piece of paper. Like, okay, I want this vibe. And if you don't know what you want yet, just brainstorm in these different areas. What are all the vibes I can imagine this tune being in? You know, Do I want it to be traditional? Do I want it to sound like this certain version? Do I want it to be um, like this you know, classic recording? Or do I want it to be you know, something totally different? So... Um, I, I recommend starting there, brainstorming all the vibes, all the tempos, or if you know some of the things, like I'm going to feature the saxophone player on this, and then you can start and say like, oh, okay, there's got to be a saxophone solo or saxophone solo is going to play the melody. So then you just think about all the different parts of a tune traditionally, right? You're going to have maybe some kind of introduction. What do you, what vibe do you want for the introduction? Who's going to play the melody? Is there going to be a counterline? And you write it all out in words, and that like kind of makes a very clear roadmap 
So I, anytime I'm stuck, this really helps because I'm like, all right, wait a minute. If I'm sitting in the audience and I'm hearing this, what do I want to hear? Or like, what are some things that are going to help make it sound good? But what about uh, maybe we were, it's a big band chart and we want the trombones to play uh, in unison the melody and then they get a sick solely to get them featured. Or it's a ballad and you're like, what instrument should play the melody on the ballad? Oh, wait, the trombone is the best instrument. So obviously yeah, the trombone is going to play the melody on the ballad because it sounds the nicest. Um, <laughs> but that's just one way to do it. So anyway, I really do recommend that kind of like writing it out in words strategy. It's worked really well for me uh, and a lot of people. And it came from John Clayton and I will 100% not try to steal credit for it. And it's been super helpful over the years. So, and then check out as many different versions as you can and see like, what have people done with this tune? Like all the things you are, there's so many ways that people have done it. And you're like, all right, well, what way do I want to do it? And first, and then the third thing, I guess, is to take all of your expectations off of yourself. And it's like, nobody's expecting you to do anything in particular. Everyone just wants you to make something that you like, you know, just make something that you like and make sure that, you know, whatever the expectations are, if it's a school project, that it meets the expectations. But otherwise, just make something that sounds nice and that you like, because what's the point other, otherwise, you know? Uh, within the parameters, of course, if it's for school, because uh, that's always a thing to be aware of and be careful of is making sure that, um, you know, school stuff is uh, taken care of. How do you use modes in your improvising? Oh, man, that's what we've been talking about all week this week. I guess this is getting away from our fundamentals talk, but that's OK. You use modes. Modes are, in my mind, modes are the the horizontal realization of a chord symbol. Right. So. You want to be able to spell a chord as a mode and as a slash chord, be able to go back and forth between the traditional chord symbol, the mode, and the uh, slash chord, meaning like, you know, like B flat over A flat is very similar to A flat Lydian, for example. So you, you want to be able to kind of go back and forth on a spectrum between these two different things. So I use modes to identify sounds. And so some sounds can sometimes be shapes on top of other shapes and a mode is a seven note sound right so we have like triads which are three note sounds we have quadrads which are four note sounds like the diminished arpeggio a fully diminished arpeggio is a quadrad and then we have pentatonic scales which are five note sounds we have hexatonic scales which are six note sounds or triad pairs for example if you play a a flat triad and a b flat triad together that makes a hexatonic that's six notes right and then uh, any diatonic or seven note scale, I know it doesn't match up with the numbers, but uh, modes are all seven note sounds from a, a parent scale. And there's four parent scales, major, melodic minor, harmonic minor, harmonic major, right? So you got those four and that covers all the bases. And then you've got all of the symmetrical scales beyond that. And symmetrical scales, of course, they all do have modes, but most of them are symmetrical, of course. Uh, so it doesn't matter where you start, you're going to end up with the same thing. Except when you get into some of the Messian, like modes of limited transposition, I'm losing everyone because it's a super nerdy theory talk, but that's okay. Uh, the modes of limited transposition will uh, give you some different stuff. But generally speaking, and there's obviously always going to be exceptions to the rules that I'm trying to throw out there. But um, so anyway, modes are sounds. So when I see D minor, you know, that's D minor seven, like, so what? That's a, do, that's a Dorian sound. So what makes that sound Dorian? You know, it's the natural six, it's the natural nine, but it's really C major, right? So 
you know, with my students, I try to go back and forth between thinking of stuff modally, chord symbol wise, key center wise, and be able to kind of go back and forth freely with all of that stuff. So uh, that's what I think about and with modes, man. Uh, modes are a tool, you know, but tunes are modal. Like a lot of tunes, when they jump around non-functionally, that means that they're modal. It's using a modal mixture. And so you got to be able to see what the mode shift is. You know, we were playing uh, some Woody Shaw music this week in our studio at UNT, and that's was exactly what we were talking about. We were talking about modal mixture. We we're talking about how do you navigate this. So, uh, not that I, I mean, I'm not a person who thinks you need to know like um, unlimited theory to play jazz. You don't, you know. But it does help to dig into some of these things and know the options, you know, and know the options beyond and expand your ears beyond and to expand your concept, you know, just like we were talking about a sound concept. There's also a harmonic concept, you know, and there's also um, articulation concept and there's also every single part of your playing. There's a concept, you know, that goes along with it. So and that could be, you know, this this could be something in terms of like the sound of a standard like Nathan was asking, you, you know, the sound of this or that. Like if you change the mode or change the parent scale, that's harmonizing a particular melody, you end up with a totally different vibe and a totally different sound. So you could say like, you know, if you turn a major tune, but you harmonize it with melodic minor, it's going to sound way different. And that's where you get into reharmonizing standards and all kinds of fun things like that. So, so you got to know them all just because I think the thing that happens with students and myself and everyone is that we know stuff in our brain, but we don't know it on the trombone, you know? So it takes a, a lot of, concerted effort to make sure that it uh, actually comes out as muscle memory on the trombone because if you're thinking all right here's the diminished I'm on D flat and I have to you know figure out what the notes are which I'm sure you can but if you can't go I mean what are you going to do you know how do you work on your production in the low register of the bone do you practice the maggio I don't know what the maggio is so no Um, I practice things like uh, false tones in the low register. Why? Because the more you can control the false tones, the more you can get resonance on the on the normal notes. If you're if you've got a trigger right and um, opening up that low register. The second thing I think about is opening up the inside of my mouth to make sure that the syllable is correct, like O and O syllable, do 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 do. And then I do things like uh, kind of inspired by Dave, the Dave Taylor exercises, where he would have people play scales, but make sure that all the notes were the same before you could move on and really open up the low note, the low range and just. See that, that, that second to last G wasn't the same. spit so i would have to start back from the beginning um and playing in the lower register is you know important trying to utilize it you know i've been doing something i've been trying to do try to be more like marshall jilks is to play like the arbins like uh (laughs) 
with a pedal note in between. That's yeah, not really working, right? And do maybe two octaves, something like that. Um, in the warm-up book, you know, in terms of fundamentals, I do like articulation exercises on the pedal notes, like. Uh, <laughs> Etc. Etc. Uh, you can find that if you go to get ready. You can find that. That's some of the things I do to work on production in the low register. You got to have that mouth open. You got to have um, that resonance. You got to have the concept in mind. You know, you got to know what you're aiming for. Okay, how often do you and how long have you worked on intonation? I've been revisiting it recently on a daily basis, and I'm thinking of working on it every day. When recording, you can hear everything. Oh yeah, man, you can totally hear it. You know, I'm working on something too. I'm working on a whole kind of series of drone lessons, and I've been making drones because I think that there's. I think of it in two ways. There's playing in tune and then there's there's good intonation is like it's an alive thing, right? Like it doesn't there's no right and wrong. It has to be in tune with the people you're playing with at that moment. Like if you're a person that looks at the tuner, I mean that's a good starting point, but you it's all about the ears. And it, every key is different, every like scale degree is different and every key um so I work on intonation with drones and I do chromatic scales, major scales, minor scales, interval studies, uh, my major scale workout, I do it with a drone, the minor scale workout I do with a drone, just so we can tune every note to every key. And then um, that's one thing, that's tuning to a bass note, but then you gotta find, when you're playing an ensemble, like the balance is just a much a part of the intonation, so. But yes, I practice it every time I pick up the horn, and I think it's important to never forget about intona uh, intonation. Uh, you just have to play in tune all the time, but know that each note has a different place in every key. So if I play a chromatic scale with a B-flat drone, it's gonna be, a, everything's gonna be in a slightly different position than if I play it with a G drone or an F drone. Um, every single note. So if you don't take the time to go through it all, you'll never know and you'll never be able to, to tune it. So there's a good question from Drew. How do you incorporate sound concepts from other instruments? Specifically, I usually find from other instruments an emotive word or an adjective <clears throat> that I then want to apply to myself. Like you might say like, oh, Dexter Gordon plays ballads with such romance, you know, and there's a sound to that. It's got that subtone sound. And I would, you know, you could say like, oh yeah, Curtis kind of does that too. But like, if you're thinking about Dexter Gordon on a ballad, but then he's got that big robust sound too. So it's not like just playing subtone or just playing loud. It's like, it's that whole dynamism of the whole thing, you know? But then like when I hear someone like Chick Corea and like I hear his playfulness on the piano, like I want that. That's part of my concept that I would hope to achieve someday. It's like, how do I sound playful? How do I, like every note that he touches to me, it sounds curious and playful. So that's how I think about incorporating that into my sound. You know, I don't know exactly what that is yet. I put it up here and let it kind of, you know, spin around, but being able to first identify what those things are that you like, and why you like them is a good start. You know, why, you know, why do I like this? What about it draws me in so I can create something that draws other people in. 
um, in the future, you know, for something else, for somebody else's, uh, when they listen to me, you know, how do I create that dynamic sound, the, the robustness, the romance, you know, whatever, uh, all of that stuff. So I think about those things, like the those words, and then I think about how uh, to apply them uh, thereafter. Uh, this is from Raphael. So if you have an example, D minor seven, you normally use a Dorian, but how would you make it sound flamenco, for example? Well, that would make it, it would have a flat nine, Raphael. So that would be a different a different sound. It's not the same sound. So you wouldn't make a Dorian sound sound flamenco. You know what I mean? It's like a different thing. It'd be a different mode. You'd be using a Phrygian mode or I think there's something called a flamenco scale. I don't know exactly what it is, but you would be making that sound instead. You know, it would have a flat nine instead of and then that is like a Dorian sound. But if you want to play that uh, more Phrygian sound, you're like but I think that that flamenco scale comes with like a major it's a different it's a different thing so you would not make Dorian something else every sound is its own thing in my brain and how I hear it like you don't make one into another right there are relationships you know so that you can easily know how to like find the notes but each sound like that's what i said like i played it i was like oh that's not right it has a flat nine but oh wait it actually is something else because it actually has two uh harmonic minor parts to it like the harmonic minor parts i mean like d e flat f f sharp you know that those half steps that are a whole step apart so it's kind of almost more like a diminished scale that flamenco thing but let's not go <laughs> down this deep route and like get into an argument about about that but for me, the short answer is that a mode <clears throat> is a sound, and it's a sound of major. A Dorian is a sound of major from the second scale degree, but it's not major. It's also not minor. It's Dorian. You know, each each thing has its own sound. And if you sit at the piano and play the play it stacked up in thirteenths, I have a, a video on YouTube about this too, like playing all the chords stacked up to the thirteenth in a key will give you the sound of the key or the sound of the chord. It's not just the triad or the seventh chord. It's up to the 13th. Once you get up to the 13th, that's all the notes. That's all the notes of a major scale, but separated out into two octaves, right? So if you put, just take the, if you don't believe me, just take your right hand and left hand, C, E, G, B, D, F, A. If you put D, F, and A in the middle of C, E, G, and B, you get a C major scale. And so the same applies for every other scale and for every key. So that's why I say that a mode is uh, just an extension of this of the sound of the key. How do I practice tonguing while arching the back of my tongue for high notes? You got to change the vowel sound. You got to go ta 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 ti 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 as I go up. If I play like a B flat scale. Going ta ta ti ta 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 ti 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 ti. You know what I'm saying? So you got to make sure that if you say ti, the tongue is raised, right? If you say ta, the tongue is down. So if you're, this happens all the time. But the students are trying to play a high B flat, and they're going ta or to to try to get this big sound on this high note. But you have to say ti to get it out to get because that's how you sing. If you go, if you're doing a lip slur, you go ah ee. 
You have to do T. That's all, that's all I can tell you. You have to think about always, whatever register you're in, what vowel sound goes with that register? O, A, E, and some kind of transitions between all of those. Uh, Raphael, no problem, man. Um, it wasn't a silly question at all. I think that it's a very misunderstood thing. Modes are very misunderstood and very um, people are scared of them also, you know, um, but you shouldn't be scared of them. And they're just, modes are just a, a rearrangement of the of the parent scale. So, but the, they all have a different sound. So like we practice things in two ways in our studio. So we practice one semester, we'll practice like a major scale workout where I, we try to play all the possible intervals, triads, seventh chords, ninth chords, 11th chords, 13th chords that go with a key, a key center. So we focus on a key center. So C major, F major. Then we switch and say, okay, now we want to improvise, practice improvising with the thing that we just learned. So the thing that we just learned is all of the relationships with inside of a key. And what we want to do it so that we think of each mode as a sound. So then we'll say, okay, now we're gonna play F major, F Dorian, F Phrygian, F Lydian, F Mixolydian, F Aeolian, and then F Locrian. And each sound, what does that chord symbol look like? If I had to make it into a chord symbol, what does it look like? And then from there, uh, you have a much better understanding of the sounds when you do it from the same root, because they're all from different parent scales. They're all modes of a different scale, right? So. Like F, F major is from F major. F Dorian is from E flat major, if that makes sense. And then you can kind of go from there. Um, most people don't have the uh, self self um, editing to like make them do all 12 keys. So sometimes being in a studio and having that uh, outside motivation helps you get through all those keys uh, when you don't want to. But let me tell you, the, when I started doing that stuff, my playing really opened up my ears really opened up. I could hear what the sounds were. I know what the possibilities are. Um, it always seemed like magic to me growing up. Like, how would you know what extension to use or whatever? But it's like, oh no, this is Dorian. So I'm gonna use a natural nine because that's what it sounds like, you know? Um, or you can hear, so what? And say, oh, that's Dorian, you know? Because it has that sound. All right, one more question. And then we're gonna call it for the day. I've got our virtual studio masterclass, which is coming up right after this. So if you want more, uh, direct questions. We're going to get on a Zoom call and have a nice little hang. Um, we do that once a month. So if you're not in the virtual studio, just uh, go and either buy a course or enroll in the sub monthly subscription uh, and you get add into the Facebook group. And then we will see you every week. I post a new lesson every single week for the subscription people. So you can check that out. And then once a month we get together, people play, give feedback, you know, talk, hang. Uh, it's a good time. Just kind of like a, like a, studio class for for university but online so hope you'll join us for that we're working through a rhythm changes uh, master class sequence um, right now and that's the current live like new lesson every week and then after that um, we're moving to a drone thing so if you're if you're gonna be a person that wants to get into playing with other people and playing in ensembles which I think is everybody uh, I think that these exercises are gonna be super duper helpful uh, drone, a drone course and a drone book and a lot of, a lot of more things to come. So you can join us there, but uh, let me get to this last question from John Bracey. The third, he says, what was it like studying with Steve Teray at Juilliard? Um, Steve, <laughs> Steve Teray is a very big personality and to work with him was like amazing and also challenging. And he challenged me like no other teacher had challenged me before. 
his expectation level is super high and he never lets it go. And he applies that same level of acute awareness to his playing too. And you see it and you can tell and he'll tell you what he's working on and you can hear it get better and you can really see where he's coming from. He comes off maybe as a little tough, you know? So there's some people that have experiences with him that would say that he's really tough, you know? And um, I think he is, but if he knows you're coming at the music from a spirit of love and, you know, that you're just as deeply invested, like you can have a great, great, great experience. And I had a really great experience with Steve um, myself, you know? And uh, he taught me a lot about holding myself accountable. He taught me a lot about having a sound concept. He taught me a lot about knowing, really knowing something. Um, because there's a big difference between sort of knowing a tune and knowing the tune, you know? And uh, he was really good at like holding up a mirror, you know? And just like, hey, so this is the level. Hey, this is like what other people are doing. Like this is what my other students are doing. Oh, you know, so-and-so, he was my student, you know? And uh, it was really, it was really good for me. And there are certain habits that there's certain things I thought always thought he was ridiculous for saying. And now I find myself saying the same things, which is very interesting to me. So it's yeah, to me it's super interesting um, that that that's been happening to me. And uh, he's he's a big figure in in my trombone musical life. So thank you, Steve. And I uh, hope I can actually see you sometime soon. But that's going to wrap it up for this week. Um, our fundamentals class. We talked a little bit about fundamentals. But we're back each and every Friday uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern. Next week, we're going to do a trading session. So um, the trading session is where we play some tunes. So stay tuned uh, on um, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I will post up what tunes we're going to play. Probably not hard tunes for this first time. And we'll also take questions in between. So at 1 p.m. Eastern, each Friday, uh, at least for the next month or two, and maybe the time will move, but uh, we'll be we'll be hanging and playing and talking, and it's going to be great. So thanks for being here, everybody. I appreciate you, and uh, leave co- any additional comments with any additional questions. We'll try to get them on the slate for next week. So have a great one, and we'll catch you next time.